Thanks, Barry, for doing a good summary of where we've been. And the reason that we're in this series is taken out of Matthew, where Jesus said to those that came to him, the preachers of the day that were very jealous of his ministry and very disturbed that he identified himself as not simply a rabbi or a wandering philosopher, but he identified himself as sent from God, as the Son of God, as God in the flesh on earth to lead the way for men to return back home in fellowship with God. They were, they were disturbed by that. And so they asked Jesus, they said, give us a sign. How, show us a sign. Let us know that you really are who you say you are. And he said, you know, it's really very tricky and wicked of you to continue to ask for signs. He had given them, you know, there had been many signs that followed his ministry to confirm that he was who he said he was. Ministry of healing, ministry of forgiving sins, ministry of opening the eyes of the blind, ministry of turning water into wine, ministry of feeding the 5,000. They ask him for yet another sign, maybe a bigger sign. And he said, the only sign that I will give you is this, the sign of Jonah. And the sign of Jonah had two components. That Jonah was in the belly of a whale, in darkness, in tomb, and then he came forth onto dry land and in the light. He went from the dark to the light, by being entombed in the belly of a whale for three days. And he said, that's one of the signs that I'm going to give you, the sign of Jonah. But he said, the other sign of Jonah is this, that Nineveh, a people that were very wicked, Nineveh is today known as Mosul in northern Syria, ISIS's headquarters. They are entrenched in Mosul. In fact, if you Google Mosul, it's probably going to come up Uh, The wire service is going to say the news today in Nineveh. Nineveh was a very, very wicked and cruel city, a very large city in Syria. They were in the dark. Jonah was sent by a merciful God to preach and to speak about turning to God, away from themselves and to turn to God. He was sent into a dark place And they responded. They responded so that they became people no longer in the dark, but in the light. So that was the sign that Jesus gave. And as we are walking through Jonah in our Lenten series, leading up to Easter, we're seeing a number of occasions where Jonah is found to be in a very dark place, But God does not leave him there. God comes after him. God does not stop in the pursuit. He's relentless. Nothing can deter him from pursuing Jonah and us when we go into dark regions, into dark places. And God always gets his man. If we're his children, you might as well go ahead and stop running. 
Even if he has to throw you into the sea, even if he has to send a storm, even if he has to send a great fish after you, God is going to get you. And that is not because God is angry with us, but it's because of God's Father heart to show us compassion and bring us back into the light. And that's where we're going again this morning. This morning, I want you to see three pictures, three cameos with the sailors. And I want you to ask a question of yourself this morning with each of these cameos. And it may be that it's going to be too overwhelming. It's going to be too much to ask that you ask yourself all three questions. Maybe you'll park on just one of the cameos and one of the questions because that's most where you are this morning. I had a friend of mine who, like our worship leader, was named Justin. And Justin was one of the husbands of, there were three couples, and we chartered a sailboat for a vacation. And so each of the three couples flew in to the marina. We occupied the boat that night in the marina. And then the next morning, we set sail on this boat. And every boat, every sailboat that you would charter came with a dinghy. That's a rubber raft. And it had a little motor on it so that when you're anchored offshore, you can all jump in the dinghy and go ashore for provisions or restaurants or whatever. Now, Justin, one of the men, good friend, was very precise. He was very into details and particularly safety precautions. And Justin was very concerned about safety, always concerned about safety. He was an emergency room pediatrician, so maybe it's no surprise. But one evening, we all went to sleep. We were just exhausted, and we're below deck. We all have our place below deck that we're sleeping, and his is closest to the stern. That's the rear of the boat. And each evening, I would pull the dinghy very close to the stern so it wouldn't be way out there in the dark and another boat run across the line or run into the dinghy because there's no lights on it. Well, that evening, because of the waves, the rubber dinghy rubbing against the stern of the boat near his cabin where he's sleeping was this sound most of the night for him. Now we're all asleep, including his wife beside him. So he finally gets up and he says, in the dark, I'm going to lean over the stern. I'm going to untie the dinghy to let it out so it won't rub against the stern. So, in the process of leaning over and untying, he falls overboard into the water. In the dark, moonless night, dark water, waves, and there's no ladder that's released for him to get on board, so he's just clawing on the side of the sailboat. He can't get into the rubber dinghy, and he's losing energy, and he's there in the dark, And so he's trying to call for somebody 
uh, help, a little, a little help out here. And then he starts to try to bang on the side of the boat. And we're so glad that his wife, in the dark, felt for him and was like, why is my safety-conscious husband not here? And she looked into the boat cabin, didn't see him there. It's very confined space. He couldn't have gotten away. He said, what? And then she hears the noise. And she goes out, and she helps, releases the ladder, gets him back on board. He was not precise about safety matters for the rest of the trip. He had nothing to say. The man that was most precise and most concerned about how we dock, do we have enough water, don't light that fire there, that was most concerned, that knew the most about safety, was the one that was overboard. And this morning, it's striking again that the man who really is the closest to God, Jonah is a prophet, is the one that's getting ready. This prophet, this man who speaks for God, is the one that we're going to see this morning gets thrown over as a fugitive, as the sinner who has created all this chaos in the sea. If we could have had a webcam on Justin before he went overboard, or as he went overboard, or as he's calling for help, we would learn a lot of things. And we would learn a lot of things that we had not known before as we get to see a man encounter things that we had never encountered. Imagine this morning that we have a webcam on this boat in the storm. And as we get to verse 7, we're apt to think that these men are leisurely casting lots on a deck, but realize the storm has not abated. And it continues to grow more and more tempestuous. God is sending the storm to not only get, but to arrest their attention. And we're told in cameo number one about really what the problem is. The problem is they can't figure out what is behind this abnormal sa- storm. These are mariners, seasoned sailors. They understand the weather. They understand the waves and the currents. They understand all those things so well that they would, they would devise and say, we need to cast lots because something is behind this storm rather than simply the gods. Rather than the gods simply of nature, there's an angry force behind this. This is a supernatural storm. And so in verse 7, they cast lots. And we don't know if this is pickup sticks. We don't know if it's like the die that were cast at the feet of Jesus at the cross. But these men on deck in the storm huddled together, and they try to figure it out. They start to make inquiry of the storm. They are starting to associate the storm, the trial, their suffering with a guilty party. They are making, coming to a conclusion that the suffering that we're facing in our life now is as a result of sin. The misery index is such that it is because of a cause. 
the crisis has a cause. And they began to make an inquiry into the cause of the crisis. Again, knowing that it's not just a natural storm. It's the result of man or men. On whose account this evil has come upon us, so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. In Proverbs 16, verse 33, we read, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So what's going on here is, again, they have come to conclude that suffering can be as a result or a consequence of sin. So that a crisis can have as its cause the sin of man. This can happen in nations. We have seen nations that have faced starvation conditions because of corrupt government or dictator or cruel dictatorship or war. We have seen it in cities. Right now there's a debate going on. Is it the sinfulness? Is it the injustice? Is it the corruption of Flint, Michigan that's behind the tainted water? In other words, did they take shortcuts and because of their sin It's creating a city disaster. We've seen it in families. We've seen where pornography or alcohol abuse, anger issues, workaholism, or making idols of a family member or children. That that begins over the year, not quite as sudden as with Jonah, but over the years... It plays out because sin is not like a bullet that is fired from a gun that only impacts me. My sin is more like a hand grenade that when it goes off, shrapnel impacts everyone. We are in a community, and whether you're a follower of Christ or not, your sin impacts your community. These sailors would know that. They knew that someone's sin among them and in community with them aboard ship was impacting them. It wasn't their sin, but they still were going to experience the consequences behind that. Can I just say a quick word of application to parents? And this is my own little thing. But pornography is not a significant struggle with me. And it's not because I'm a good man. It's because I'm a, I'm a fearful man. I'm a weak man. And I understand that that is one thing particularly that Satan will hold out the bait and he'll hide the hook. He's a great fisherman. He'll hold out on that lure. He'll hide out this tempting bait. But there's a hook there. And I have for years had this prayer, Lord, if I go down that road, then I am willing for my children to go down that road too. And you may say, that's horrible. No, it keeps me in check. It's saying that I'm not going to kid myself to think that it's my private struggle that will not impact 
my children, my boys, or my family members, or my friendships, or my relationship, or my ministry. It blows to hell everything. And I'm not trying, I'm not picking on pornography as the only one. I mean, it can be a critical spirit. It can be gossip. We've got to come to a point where we look at sin in our own life to realize that, yes, we can certainly be pardoned and experience forgiveness, but it's a community. It has an impact upon my community. If I continue to go in that way, if I continue to stay on board this boat as Jonah did without dealing with it, without confessing it, bringing it into the light, bringing it even into my community. And look, that's what he does. Verse 8, they go to Jonah, tell us, they start to make an inquiry, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? Notice that they're doing a diagnostic here. With us, it would sound like this, going to someone that you dearly love. And last week, I'm not going to go and rehearse last week's sermon, but last week's, one of the major points of emphasis was intervention. Caring enough and loving enough another person that you would actually put your arm around them, draw them aside and say, I'm in you, I'm in this with you, I love you, but this has to change. You're destroyed. Wake up. There's a storm. You're going to destroy yourself and others. And I'm committed to you. I want to intervene. Well, notice, they're not giving him the third degree and grilling him. It's more as their inquiry and saying, what's going on? What's going on in your life, John? We don't know what's going on. What's, what's going on? And it says that either then or in the process of asking these questions or even before It says in verse 10, the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. In Joshua chapter 7, Joshua chapter 7, there is, and it's the whole chapter, there's an account that plays out, and Jonah would have known this account. It's called the sin of Achan. The walls, you might remember Joshua, and they, they march around the walls of Jericho, the, and then with a shout and a trumpet blast, the walls come tumbling down, and they were to go in, and they were to take captive the people, but they weren't to take their stuff, particularly their golden idols. Everything there that was their stuff was called a devoted item because that was to be given over to God. God said, don't go playing with these things. Give them to me to take care of. I want them removed. I don't want them with you. Well, the people broke faith. They said, fine, okay, great. But there was one, Achan, who took some. Then there's another city that they come to, a smaller city, and they are going to go and take possession of that smaller city But they weren't even going to send all the troops. And as they go to this really small podunk city, the men there come after them, and they kill 36 of their people, suffering. What's going on? Why did God allow that to happen? Joshua 
tears his clothes. He falls before the ark, which is where God spoke. God says, get up and consecrate the people. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In other words, one man's sin has consequences for the whole church. I was privileged to pastor a church in the mountains of North Carolina. There was a little rock church where they rang the bell whenever I would arrive. They didn't have a set time to start except when the preacher made it. Can't start without a preacher. So I would make it there, and then they would ring the bell, and people would walk from their homes to the church. And when I first came to that church, there was something. I couldn't put my finger on it at all. But it was just like every worship service was a funeral service. And I mean, you know me. I mean, don't I preach sermons kind of like a funeral? I mean, I'm not excitable. I'm not passionate. I'm not, you know, I don't. Anyway, I was like, I want, they, would, they wouldn't do that. They would never laugh. I try to tell some kind of joke. And just, I try to make some kind of point. And they're just dying. I was visiting with one of the, the men, and uh, he was an officer in the church, and I said, what's going on? It's like somebody has died. And he says, well, our church feels like it's a dead church. I said, really? And he says, yeah. And he said, uh, there's something that happened a year or so ago. We're not really sure, but we think that that's why. I said, well, what is it? And he says, you know, this guy who's a deacon? Yeah. Well, he had an affair. He's a tennis coach at one of the high schools here. And he had an affair with one of the underage tennis uh, players. And at that time, there was no punishment. You might lose your job. You get a slap on the wrist. And he was a deacon in the church, and his wife, and they had never worked through it, was a church pianist. In other words, their hypocrisy and their not and and not dealing with that sin and their being a part of that community, that undealt sin, was killing the community in that church. And I'm happy to say that it got dealt with. It was not pretty, but it had a very happy ending. It had a very happy ending in that there were tears, there was repentance, there was resolve for newness of life. Those folks came from the dark, and that church came from its dark place to experience new life because they dealt with the sin. Jonah confesses, but I would ask you the question as I've got to leave this, How do you align the suffering that you face? Now, you're not on board a ship with your life perhaps threatened. But look, what's a current or persistent trial that you're facing right now? Do you think think that it's in any way connected to a sin that you're struggling with right now? Well, God doesn't want to leave you there. Just like he doesn't want to leave Jonah here. Just like he doesn't want to leave the sailors here. He wants us to do as we see Jonah do, which is confess. Bring it into the light that it's no longer in the dark. 
If a thing stays in the dark, then we harbor it in the dark and we feed it with our shame. But if we can trust our community, if we can say, this is, this is not pretty in my life, but I love you, and I know you're not going to walk out, I know you're not going to leave me, I know you sailors are not going to jump overboard, but it's me. Let's deal with this together. Then, when it comes into the light, I promise you, it's going to die there. You're going to experience transformation because there in the light, God is going to work powerfully to transform you. Secondly, notice what these men do. What these men do in response to Jonah. Jonah Jonah confesses that it's him. These Jonah also tells them what they must do. He says, you're right. This storm is from God. I have run from God. And you need to throw me overboard. And these men look at Jonah. These pagan sailors look at Jonah. And they say no. These men look at Jonah and they pull out their oars, and they row. That probably is an indication of how big this boat is. I assume at this point it's lost to sails. It may even be dismasted. But they pull out oars, and they really try to row. In fact, you have a footnote, if you have the ESV, it says that they rowed hard. And if you look at the footnote, it says they really dug in. So they're hard at it. They are trying to solve the problem in the flesh. It's what we do as well. I encounter things that many times my first attempt, my first attempt is not to lay a hold of the person of Christ, lay a hold of the body and the sacrifice of Christ on my behalf. My first attempt is to dig in with my own oar and paddle in my own flesh to try to make it back out of the storm to shore. How do I do that? Well, one of the chief ways is moral reformation. Moral reformation looks like this. Try harder. Get disciplined. I'm not going to do that again. I'm not going to I'm not going to do that again. I'm just going to stop cold turkey. I'm not going to go there again and that'll last for about 3 weeks. If you are a good Pharisee, six weeks. If you want to make everybody's life miserable as a legalist, then you might be able to even change your life and just make everybody absolutely miserable for the rest of your life as you fight against that in your own flesh. But that's not what Jonah is prescribing. And yet there's a resistance from these men, I believe, There's a resistance from these men from laying hold of Jonah and using him as the sacrifice. They'd rather do it himself. And you say, that sounds sick. That's crazy. What do you do in the face of persistent sin in your life? Jesus Christ holds himself forward. He says, take me. 
cry to me. Take me. Lay hands on me as the means of not only pardon, but power for a new life. And we go, oh, okay. And then we try to do it on our own. As if God has forgiven us of our sin and then asked us to work out everything else on our own. We can't any more than these men can row to shore. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Wayne Grudem on this very technical word, but there's no other word that we can use other than the word propitiation says it means a sacrifice that bears the complete punishment and turns away the wrath of God. And thereby, as all punishment and wrath are exhausted, God is favorable, favorable he is propitious toward us. Still sounds rather technical, but let me tell you what's happening. What happens is this. Jonah comes before them, and the sailors, still rowing, trying to get to shore on their own devices, says, there's only one way to make it to shore. There's only one way to be saved. There's only one way for the wrath of God in this storm to end. And that is for my life to be substituted for yours. And then, as we see, once my life is substituted for yours, the storm will end and all will be calm. Propitiation is twofold. It is a sacrifice that satisfies and like a candle, it so extinguishes and snuffs out the flame of God's wrath. But, secondly, it makes God favorable toward us. It's not that he's still brooding and pouting, waiting for an occasion to get angry again. There's no wrath left, and there's nothing but a Father's favor granted to us. Now hear me before I leave. You're going to struggle with unbelief like I struggle. You're not going to struggle with unbelief that you can be forgiven of your sin. Some of you may. Some of you may. But I hope, I hope if you've been attending any time, you know that that is a lie of Satan. And he loves to pull that one out of his, out of his file cabinet. That's probably lie number one. You can't be forgiven of that sin. Not you. Not that. But if we're beyond that unbelief and say, praise God, I'm forgiven of all my sins. The second lie of unbelief is this. Yeah, but God is pretty reluctant. God forgives you because he has to. In other words, God forgives you, but he doesn't love you. God forgives you, but he doesn't like you. God forgives you, but he just assumes not have anything to do with you because of your past. Propitiation says nothing could be farther from the truth. God is not reluctant to forgive us nor love us. He's a father. And when he forgives us, we become his sons and his daughters. And so the sailors look to Jonah 
and they throw him overboard. And when they throw him overboard, two things happen. A whale comes, and we don't know if they see the great fish, as it were, Megadon, the mega fish, to come get him or not. But a fish comes, and we'll look at that next week. But the second thing is, the sea goes immediately calm. I believe that these men, who then turn to God and make vows and sacrifices, and someone once said, there's probably not been since Noah and the ark a a sacrifice ever made on board a ship except here. These pagan men turned to Jonah's God. As a result of what he did, they worship God. I believe with all my heart that when Jonah went overboard, and when they threw him overboard, they threw him overboard with a tear in their eye. And they knew that God's justice would be satisfied and they could only hope for God to be merciful to Jonah, as he was with the whale. Because why? I mean, why would Jonah Jonah even tell them this? Hey, throw me overboard. Throw me overboard in this storm. It's going to be certain death for me. Throw me overboard. Except his own heart had changed toward these men. That he was willing, like our Savior, he was willing to die for these who were previously strangers to him. He had come to a point now that he says, my life for yours. There's a lesson in that for us, that we would be willing to lose even our life in love and ministry to others. But the greater lesson is the second Jonah that it points to. It points to one, even as this table does, it points to a Jonah by the name of Jesus, who said, my life for yours. My life facing the wrath of God that it may be extinguished and completely met that he may now show you nothing remains except his love and his favor. This is a wonderful, wonderful account that points years ahead so that Jesus himself can say, here's the sign that I give you. I give you the sign of Jonah. Jonah is only 48 verses, but over and over and over again, we see God not throwing men overboard and leaving them in the dark, but we see God who's willing for his own son to be thrown overboard in the dark, that we might be brought out into life and light. And when we come forward to this table this morning, we're taking one that was thrown overboard on our account and saying, you are my rightful substitute, then, now, and forever. For on the night that he was betrayed, his body was broken. There was no rescue in the storm for him. His body was broken, but it was broken for us and in our place. So as often as we eat the bread, we proclaim his body 
in place of my body being broken. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents my shed blood. Drink this in remembrance of me, for it represents my blood for your blood. The washing away, the washing, the complete washing away, no residual left of all sin. Drink this in remembrance of me. I'd like to invite our men to come forward as they prepare to serve us this morning. Let us proclaim now the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. The people of God are counted as those who can look to this bread and to this cup and they see the body of Christ. They see more than mere bread or wine or juice. They see the great exchange, the great substitution, his life for mine. And it moves us to take fresh vows. It moves us to make fresh sacrifices. It moves us to worship. It moves us to say, now I can give my life in love for God and others. You are welcome to this table if you're a believer and you're a follower of this one who gave his life for you. We don't come because we're strong. We come because we're weak, but we're hungry. And we know where the source of life that feeds us is found. Mysteriously, it's found at this table. I pray that you experience Christ's power for living as you participate in his supper where he offers himself to you in these elements.